Listening to the Pulled by the Root podcast. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Heidi Marble. We have some serious brain power on our podcast today. My co author, wonderful friend, Elisa Zalma, MD, is here. She is a psychiatrist. And we also have Dr. Abby Goldberg here. I would like to read you Dr. Abby Goldberg's bio. Abby Goldberg is a professor in the Department of Psychology at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts, where she also currently serves as the Director of Women's and Gender Studies. Her research examines diverse families, including LGBTQ parent families and adoptive parent families. She is the author of over 140 peer-reviewed articles and four books, LGBTQ Family Building, A Guide for Prospective Parents, Open Adoption and Diverse Families, Gay Dads, Lesbian and Gay Parents and Their Children. She is the co-editor of four books, LGBTQ Parent Families, Innovations in Research and Implications for Practice, Divorce and Relationships Desolution, Trans Encyclopedia, and the editor of Sage Encyclopedia of LGBTQ Studies. She has received research funding from the American Psychological Association the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the Williams Institute, the Society for Psychological Study of Social Issues, the National Institutes of Health and the Spencer Foundation and other sources. She teaches courses on diversity and contemporary families, research methods with diverse families, human sexuality, and the psychology of sexual orientation, gender and crime, and ethics and clinical psychology. Welcome ladies. Thank you so much. Well, Abby, as Elise and I were preparing for your interview, the 17 years that you've studied adopted families, oh, it's just so exciting to know that this research is out there and that it's being tenderly shaped and developed. I just want to thank you in advance for, for that type of work. It's not easy. So we both want to know, how did this spark for you? Where, what is the origin of your interest in this subject matter? So adoption specifically, um, I mean, I came to this work through an interest and a passion in family diversity and families that were not being given the attention and care, I think, that I felt they deserved. Um, so I started my doctoral work at U- UMass Amherst, um, and I was studying the transition of parenthood in working class families. So families that had less than um, a college education and made a less, less than $50,000 combined. Um, and so these were families who were returning to work shortly after having a child. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the folks I worked with uh, and I were really interested in sort of how families made that transition, the challenges they face, particularly with an emphasis on family leave. You know, how do you you know, go back to work sometimes within four weeks of having a baby and, you know, balance that. And, um, you know, especially when you're not able perhaps to afford childcare or high quality childcare. So we were interested in how families were making this work. 
Um, and then, you know, through that work, I really became aware of other family forms that, you know, are sort of less represented um, when we think about families and who also may have a challenging transition to parenthood for a variety of reasons. So I did a study of lesbian couples and their transition to parenthood. So these were all couples that used donor insemination to become parents. Um, and then through that work, I got really interested in adoption because there were no studies of gay dads becoming parents um, in terms of, you know, in the, the vast majority of, of, of gay dads who pursue parenthood in the context of the same sex relationship pursue adoption. It's kind of a myth that they all pursue surrogacy because that's just something that is available to a very, very rarefied group of people. Um, even if celebrities do it, you know, most of most people don't have one hundred and fifty thousand dollars or one hundred thousand dollars. So I wanted to broaden what I how I was thinking about this transition to other sort of family groups. And then I started looking into the literature and I wow, I was said there's only one study of the transition to adoptive parenthood among heterosexual couples. And it was in Israel in the nineties. And I was like, this is weird. And I thought that is so strange. I just couldn't believe it. Uh, and that's in com comparison to hundreds of studies on the transition to parenthood for biological heterosexual couples. So the contrast was striking. And I had a personal relationship to adoption through family members of mine who've been adopted. And I have families, good friends who've adopted their children. So I just was sort of stunned. Um, and I decided, of course, I'm not just going to limit it to lesbian and gay parents. I'm going to include heterosexual parents as well. So I'm really going to include anybody who is adopting for the first time. This is how they're building their families. Um, so I didn't quite realize how challenging it would be, but I, um, <laughs> was committed to finding these folks before they adopted. It would have been a lot easier if I just looked for adoptive parents, but I was committed to finding them before they adopted because we know that transition changes everything. And I wanted to know, you know, who are the couples that are interested in openness and how does that affect, um, how things unfold? Who's open to transracial adoption? Um, who ultimately adopts transracially? And are those numbers the same? And are they more likely in one group versus another? Um, so there were so many questions I had, but I had to kind of partner with adoption agencies who were willing to hear me out and provide the materials I was offering them. This is back in the, the day before, you know, people were releasing the internet and I gave them paper materials to share with these prospective parents and offer them and say, you know, this nice, this nice professor is doing a research study. Would you like to participate? Um, and that's how I got my sample. And I've been following them for 17 years. And their kids are now teenagers. Some are, are post-teenage years. And um, we're talking to them now, which is incredibly uh, exciting. So that's the short, but not so short version. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing that, Abby. As an adopted person, looking at some of your research, there were a few things that just stood out. The pre-placement adversity as adopted people, which is a majority of our audience. We also have the triad, of course, yeah. but it's that acknowledgement of the trauma and how do we create emotionally healthy environments. Those are some of the things that I, I really love. And I also read where 
like post-adoption services are so rare and so underdeveloped. So there's so many ways we can go. Elisa, what are you thinking? Because I just don't know where to start. There's just so much. (laughs) No, I, I am, um, so thrilled to kind of hear your research firsthand and did a bunch of research and reading with, um, I mean, my goodness, what incredible um, legacy that you're leaving in terms of longitudinal studies that you're doing. Uh, very unusual and very rare to have such a longitudinal study for so long at this point. So some of my questions are, um, I guess, geared towards um, what are you finding now as you're interviewing the children who are now teenagers and beyond of these couples who uh, decided to adopt and how is this informing? Like, I guess my questions are, I have so many, but I'll try to be succinct. Um, the questions around, um, and that this is part of, I think, the openness and the uh, conflicts of the parents is how to say what they want to say about um, their children being adopted, how to say it, when to say it, what to say in terms of developmentally appropriate times. and what is your research showing about how that is done most appropriately? And what are the markers then that are predicting um, better outcomes for these adopted children in terms of markers such as um, betterly, better socially adept, more academically savvy, um, better equipped to handle issues surrounding um, both academic and social issues that in the past have been um, difficulties and challenges with children of adoption? I'm going to try to tackle all that, but you'll just guide me back if I get too offhand. Yeah. So um, with respect, I'm going to come back to the question of sort of the kids and kind of what they're sharing and how that's informed. But Really, when I look at these families and I think about who has been most, I hate the word successful, but who has been the most consistent and attuned with respect to openness, I think of the parents who, as you pointed out, you know, they start early on, whether they have what we call structural openness, which means, you know, they have real contact with the birth parents, they are communicatively open, meaning they talk about birth family, they talk about adoption, they acknowledge the reality of these children's and their own circumstances, right? It's not something that they push away or, you know, they deny or they change the subject. Um, They're open about what information they have and they're open about what information they don't have. And they offer um, possibilities for the future. Um, You know, unfortunately, we have so little information about your birth father, but you know, here's some things we could do to try to find out more. You know, I can't promise anything, but here's some steps we could take. What I've seen when we've talked to these kids and when we've talked to these parents as their kids are growing up is regardless of whether they have contact with birth family, the kids are often interested in doing things like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. They want, especially as they enter those tween and teen years, they would, they're, they're curious. They're, of course, that's developmentally appropriate. They should be curious. They want information um, that may feel, you know, less interesting or important to a kid being raised by biogenetically, you know, related parents. Um, So this idea of starting early, 
developmentally appropriate in your honesty, right? So, you know, um, but honest, you know, like not making up stories about, you know, your, they loved you so much that they placed you or, you know, they were such a happy couple when they were not, right? Like don't make stuff up, don't materialize things because when the child learns that's not true, that's created a rupture in the trust between the parent and the child. Even if the parent thinks they're doing this for the child, you know, I wanted to tell them a nice story about how their mom was in college and she had them and she just really wanted to finish her nursing degree, you know? Well, if that has no relationship to reality, the child finding out that that is a lie, that is gonna create such an incredible impasse. Forget the the sort of destruction that's gonna sort of cause and for their own identity, right? Believing something and then having the rug pulled out. So honesty, but developmentally appropriate and responsive to the child. So many parents have said, oh, we talked about it almost like now we realize too much. Like we were always talking about adoption and we were always, you know, um, bringing in certain things that we thought were culturally responsive or, you know, taking them to festivals or visiting certain places that we thought might have meaning or, um, or planning lots of trips with birth family. And, you know, Sometimes their kids are like, cool it, right? Like, just back off. You know, I don't want to talk about this right now. And so there is a tricky balance of like leaving the door open and talking, but not talking too much and not talking when it's clear that this is provoking a very upset response in a child. And sometimes, at least to me, the answer at that point is to think, well, maybe my child doesn't want to talk to me. Maybe they want to talk to somebody else. So maybe I need to ask, would you like to talk to somebody? You know, does this feel kind of uncomfortable or too complicated to talk to me? Let's find someone for you to talk to, a therapist, a mentor, whatever. Um, so the folks that do it well, I think, are responsive, developmentally appropriate, you know, honest, but not giving details that don't need to be given at a particular age. But it is true that by the time kids become teenagers, you know, they need to have access to most, if not all of their stories. Um, and that is really hard for some adoptive parents. And I, I get that, right? It's really hard to think I have to share some really tough stuff. So that's why this, these support systems, and as you mentioned, Heidi, the post-adoption services, that's why we need them. And we need them to be robust and sensitive and all-encompassing and available for all family members. In terms of what sorts of things support the child's emotional adjustment, academic adjustment, um, parents being realistic and parents being responsive is really important. So, you know, you might have two PhDs and your child has a lot of learning disabilities and your child doesn't particularly love school, but they love cooking and they're really good at, you know, sports, right? Something that neither parent was very good at. Supporting the child's interests and helping them feel validated. And, you know, even if their interests and abilities are different from parents, helping them to feel seen and appreciated for what they bring, all of the gifts that they have. We all have gifts, they just are different, can make a really big difference for that kid's self esteem and for that kid feeling and being successful, right? In the most global sense. 
So maybe your kid doesn't, I hear this, this is a story that parents often say, we really like reading, you know, in the evenings. Our child doesn't like to read. And I'm thinking, well, that may not be even related to your child being adopted, right? Not being the same genetic. Your kid might just not be interested in reading in the evenings with you. So it's sort of like letting go of that and coming up with things that is, are going to be enjoyable for the child and for the parent and stretching a little bit, as opposed to just constantly thinking, how is it that I have a child who doesn't like to read, you know, or doesn't like to read with me in the evenings? Um, I'll stop soon so you can probe me if I'm going off topic. But in terms of what the kids are saying that are kind of parents and kids tell different stories. Those stories dovetail. They do interact. But parents and kids have different ways of understanding their realities. And so, you know, a parent might say, yeah, we talk about adoption all the time. And a kid might say, we do not, <laughs> right? Because that's their reality. So a parent feels like, well, I bring it up like once every three months, you know, or so. And the kid feels that like that is not very often, but the parent and the parent's head is like, I feel like I'm bringing it up all the time. Sometimes parents also see their children's identities in different ways than children construct them. So Racial identity, for example, a parent we've seen sometimes might say my kid is biracial um, and the kid might say I'm black or we see a parent say, well, you know, my child is exploring their gender and a child might say I'm non-binary, right? Like there are these shades of gray that are revealing to me all the time why it's important to talk to multiple members of the same family. I've been interviewing couples for years and I, we interview each parent separately. And we always say like, that's really important because parents don't have the same experience of their relationship or of parenting. You know, they don't even agree on how much money they make as a family. So how, they they're certainly are going to have different ideas about like what the tenor of the relationship is or what causes the most heated conflicts in the family. Thank you for sharing that, Abby. I'd like to interject a few things if I may. Oh, yeah. So speaking as an adopted person, because that's my perspective, some of the weight that we carry is erasure, especially baby scoop era adoptees who are, you know, the mentality back then is it's the baby's a blank slate. Pretend like the baby is yours. Graph this baby into this family. And now we are all grown adults who are going crazy, bouncing off the walls, trying to figure out who we are. So I thank you so much for acknowledging the importance of openness and developmentally appropriate conversations. My concern is too, though, open adoptions from what I understand. A lot of them are not legally enforced. So it really is an agreement. And one of the things you said in your research, which I thought was really important to highlight and underline, is relinquishment, the, the issues surrounding relinquishment, that might take a while to resolve. And so that is going to bleed into continuation of relationship and issues. So man, it's a lot. It's like tangled up to try to pull all of this apart and create some kind of healthy environment for a child who really didn't have a voice or choice. They're, the adults yeah. are making all the decisions here. So and you know all their own anxieties and their own yeah. preoccupations. And as you said, relinquishment can take a while. And there's so many stories that, you know, if Everyone 
presumes what the other person is thinking or doing or their reasons for doing various things, right? In the adoptive parent's eyes, they might think, you know, she's being difficult or she's pushing boundaries or she's, you know, I'm using a birth mother or she's not listening to us. Um, and the birth parent might be just trying to figure out where do I fit or, you know, it's just like they're kind of the communication is just kind of like this, right? Um, and the birth parent might be experiencing the adoptive parents in a particular way, right? And might be thinking, they're icing me out. They don't want me to be a part of this child. They're going to take this child and run. And that evokes tremendous fear for me. And this is what I feared would happen. And I just want to get in touch so I can just be assured that that's not going to happen. And they're not responding to my calls or my emails. So maybe I should text them, right? Like the communication is being interpreted in, in ways that are genuinely painful. Like it's making me emotional thinking about it because everyone really loves the child, you know, and, and wants to believe the best, I think, but is fearful. There is so much fear for everybody that is making us, you know, when we're at our worst, you know, we're often driven by fear. And so I think there's fear is often underlying a lot of that. And I think for so much, if we could all just sort of take a deep breath and sort of say, I'm going to assume the best of intentions of this person. I know we can't always do that. I know we can't always do it, but it, it's transformative if we just try to start from that place and say, I just am going to assume this person is well-intentioned, cares about the child, cares about me. Like, how would that shift everything that comes afterwards? And if you can't do that, then come back to just the good old openness benefits the child's openness benefits everybody. Even if I don't believe it, even if I have to sit on my hands, you know, I'm going to do it because this, you know, I believe in the research, right? The research says that this is something that is a good thing to do, even if it's hard. Thank you so much for that, Abby. I know I feel the emotion too. Mm -hmm. Lisa, what are you thinking about all of these things that we're discussing? Yeah, no, I, I love hearing that both exist and both meaning, and I, I simplify this in terms of more quote left brain versus right brain experience. Okay, you know, so the left brain speaks quote unquote left because brain mm -hmm. structure is bilateral, but the more logical plan-driven side that loves data and loves science and loves research says the research is here. And um, I loved reading in your research so many things, but one of the things that I'm reminded of as you talk is the research, and correct me if this is not right, the research shows that the more you offer the child in terms of those hard things the parents are going to offer them, especially during the teen years, the more they're going to be satisfied with their mm -hmm. adoption. Mm -hmm. And I interpret that as both groups of parents or who's ever available from birth parents and the adoptive parents, if they are, quote, more right brain, meaning they're going to drop their fear. They're going to be open in the best interest of the child if they can't drop their fear around support and openness and true emotional availability. 
which really supports the research and the data that you've been looking at for the past 17 years. So they both they both come together and they both exist. And um, when I hear you talk about your firsthand experiences with parents and kids, it reminds me of a lot of my own clinical work, either with uh, children of adoption or children in the quote general population that have other other challenges that make them vulnerable too, is in this population I see and other populations, but this population in particular, if the child feels they're being quote fought over or they're in this impossible place, they can't please anybody or everybody. It is such a trauma in of itself. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure from listening to you right now, that is a part and parcel of the challenges, but Maybe if you make a comment towards that or continue with what you're talking about, that might help us understand a little bit more. Absolutely. And exactly what you were just saying, and I was imagining, yes, I know exactly who you're talking about because children feel these, I would say, divided loyalties in all kinds of contexts. Divorce is an obvious one, right? I, you know, this parent says these things about this parent and what am I supposed to say? Am I supposed to agree with them? And then when I go to that parent's house, how am I supposed to respond to them? Ugh, your father is such a nut job, right? Or your mother can't handle money. Or, you know, your your father's, you know, you know, wasting, you know, wasting, you know, your time together doing X, Y, and Z. Or I can't believe he didn't pick you up on time again. You know, all of these things create this fear response in a child. You know, they don't know how they're supposed to respond. They don't know who they're supposed to align with. And there this tension that you carry where you feel like you can't please anybody. Um, and this kind of like, why are you talking? You know, I'm a child. Why are you talking about the other adult in this way? I have no power. I don't think it's right, but I don't have any power. And I can't name why this is wrong. And the same thing can happen with the triad where if, you know, adoptive parents are saying, negative things or or dismissive things about birth parents or birth family members, um, that can have a profound effect. And what does it mean, says the child, for you to talk about them like that when I am from them? You know, when you say yes. your yes. your 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 birth mother is constantly forgetting blah blah blah, or you know, she really needs to get her act together, right? Uh, well, what does that mean about me? You know? And so just like the care with words, right? We're all guilty of saying things that we immediately say like, oh my God, that was not the best way to say that. So just being really thoughtful about how just the kind of a careless remark or dismissive remark can place a child in a position where they feel this tension, right? Which can have, it, it feels traumatic, right? To feel like, how, how do I respond? Where is my loyalty? Who do I belong to? Who am I of? Thank you so much for acknowledging this. And I, part of the reason that this project is so profoundly important to me is because I spent two decades suffering under like lack of education and knowledge. I really do believe that your research and these conversations can assure all of the parties involved that we can manage these situations. In my case, I was rejected by my adopted mother and it was the worst experience because I loved her so much. My audience knows all of this. And so the fact that we can have these conversations and say, 
there's a different way. There's a better way. My feeling, and I'm just interested to see what both of you think. Mm -hmm. If you choose to adopt a child, there are many, many considerations that you have to take. Adoption loss, trauma, all of these things. Um, And so I just hope going forward that things will change. And there is movement. There are laws changing. People are getting access to their birth certificates for the first time, but we have a long way to go. And so one of the things that is important to me, we can address this now or later, but real-time solutions, mm-hmm. because I, I'm not going to be in Washington with a sign, I'll tell you that. That's just not my gig. But what can we do now to help this? What can the people that are listening take home and say, maybe it's word choices, like you said, or just that different stance. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm rambling, but yeah, no, no, it's fine. I mean, we can get to kind of like, what can people do now? But part of this really comes down to like, it shouldn't all be on the adoptive parents, right? Like it's, it's really also about the systems and the preparation. I mean, first of all, it's all about the systems pre-adoption, right? Like we would have far fewer adoptions if we actually provided parents with the ability to care for their children and provided the supports. And that's a whole other, you know, multi-layered conversation about mental health services and substance abuse services and all the things that we need to help families thrive successfully. And I always say it's really important to acknowledge that, but it's also important to acknowledge that like that system isn't changing in the next five years to become miraculously better. And so like, okay, starting now, right? Like mm-hmm. agencies need to, all the things you said, they need to inform and prepare adoptive parents for the reality. It's not just take this baby home. And as you said, blank slate, raise them as your own, you know, good luck. It's here are all the things that you need to be informed about if you even decide to adopt. Like, make sure you're ready, you mm-hmm. know, um, and prepared for all the things that could potentially unfold. Are you committed? Can, can, can you commit yourself to being there, even if, if it's going this way, this way, this way, this way, or this way? If you end up with a child who needs, and as many of my families do right now, your child needs some extra support. Your child needs extra services. Your child might need um, to be in a residential treatment center or therapeutic day program. Are you going to be, are you going to be like holding your ears? This isn't happening. Or are you going to say my child needs extra support? Um, And it's my job. It's my role to provide that. So parents need to be prepared and they need to prepare for all the other stuff. They need to prepare for the racial um, components of this placement. If this is a transracial placement, they need to really be committed to supporting that child's racial identity. And that might not always can be convenient, right? And I mean that in air quotes, like it means that like you need to think where you live, where is your child going to go to school? What kinds of camps is your child attend? What kind of religious education or cultural education are they going to receive? Um, and thinking about everything from the child's perspective, not how do you feel when you walk into, you know, this church or this synagogue or whatever, but how do you think your child feels, right? Um, so thinking just always through the lens, that double lens of it's not just about me, um, 
But I really think a lot of it comes from just developing this double consciousness of like me and my experience and my child's experience. And that I think can break down some of the defensiveness around, you know, but I'm doing the best I can and I can't do it all. And, you know, I've already done so much and I, you know, I can't move. Um, But it softens things if you start to sort of think about it through the lens of, you know, your child and how are they experiencing this preschool classroom that's all white um, and, you know, you know, maybe your child's neuroatypical and all of the children are neurotypical and, you know, what is that like for them? So, I mean, in, information and preparation, I do, a lot of my families will tell me they do not feel like their agencies, often private adoption agencies, prepared them for the range of what ultimately unfolded. Hard mm. stuff. Yeah. So they're not blaming, but they're like, uh, Abby? We never heard about, this is a direct quote from an interview, we never heard about reactive attachment disorder. We never were told about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were never told that, you know, adopted kids are overrepresented in these higher levels of care. Um, That, to me, and, and and I, this particular parent, they are, I believe them, like, you know, like, I don't think they just forgot. And so I think that, you know, agencies are really uneven in terms of the level and depth of the training and preparation that they engage in. Yeah, thank you for acknowledging that. Lisa, what are you thinking right now? Yeah, no, that I think is is key. And um, I mean, that speaks to the nature versus nurture question of, adoption that sometimes the kids who are adopted are from the genetic standpoint are going to have a tougher time um, because of uh, their biological roots mm-hmm. for various reasons. So the adoptive families need, and the, you are so much more, you know, a finger on the pulse than, than I am about this because of all your research that they are not informed as well about that. And how how can they embrace or the question of do they want to embrace all of that make have their decision to adopt in general or adopt that child come with all of the um understanding that that might bring in terms of um all the things you've discussed about uh, potential developmental issues um issues that may come from uh, um mm, so many different things, um, you know, from a psychiatric standpoint, whatever the parents had to struggle with, substance mm-hmm. use disorder, um, developmental issues of their own, PTSD issues of their own, um, genetic loading for major mental illness, um, lots of different things um, that uh, may or may not be available from the genetic perspective. That's not even to mention all the things about transracial issues, issues that involve um other cultures that this child has come from that uh, if they're going to be placed into a family that that's not their genetics and that's not their understanding. How do you do a full disclosure so that those parents, one, make the decision and two, make it a part of their life to um, be able to, and this is also uh, honoring what you said before about using that information, but not using it too much and too soon 
and be able to intuit with the child when's the good time, who else you should involve, and um, be as open and um, fearless mm-hmm. around. Right. Yeah. No, and I was just going to say, you know, the genetic vulnerability is right. That piece is real. But let's also, I think it's so important to think about how different families would respond to those in different ways. You know, one would, you know, one family might provide a lot of support and services that allow that child to feel um, competent, for example, right? If you have a learning disability and it's diagnosed early and you get the support and services you need, you can maybe, you can, you, you can feel good about yourself and you can thrive in school. Um, and you cannot feel like a total failure, which you very well might feel if people just keep telling you to study harder, try harder, ADHD isn't a real thing, learning, you know, whatever it is, like the invalidation component is also key. And then of course, adoptive parents have their own vulnerabilities. Like, you know, sometimes I think we get, um, you know, or the field can kind of be reductionistic in like genetics, you know, and, and adoptive care, like the adoptive parents have like, you know, this idea like, oh, they're you know, well-adjusted and educated and they have resources and the birth parents, you know, they have these problems, but the adoptive parents might have mental health problems of their own and may have really dysfunctional ways of managing conflict or really have trouble acknowledging loss or, um, you know, minimizing a child's feelings of being different or, you know, as we said, wanting to, you know, connect with birth family. So it's so much this interconnection between, you know, what the child brings and then how do the parents respond? Um, and one child, like a child could have ADHD, you know, learning disability um, and have a totally different experience in one family versus another, right? Um, in one family, they feel like a total outsider. In another family, they feel like their differences are acknowledged, but also supported. Okay. That is right. Fantastic. So in the family, in the adoptive family, then that really falls, it falls on the adoptive parents to look at their own blind spots, look at their own experience of loss. There's already loss there. Potent, I'm not even going to say potential. There's already loss there. If they are adopting a child, they have a need of their own. And if that's not a biological child, for whatever reason, it's an adopted child, they already start from experience of loss. And they're going to have some challenges with competition in uh, open adoption issues. Even if they come from a very open place, their competition is going to be there. And how do those parents, what type of services are there for the parents? Yeah. To really um, understand and not bring into the relationship with their kids. I mean, this happens with, you know, parents and children, biological. I mean, this happens mm-hmm. in all parent and child relationships. And it's it's totally. magnified, of course, in these relationships. Right. The loss and then combined with the idealization, right? The idealization of like the kind of child that I want to parent, the kind of child that I want to, you know, we all do this, right? If we're parents right. where we're like, couldn't you just be like this? That's like, right. Why are you right. being like that? You know? And, you know, it's like, funny because, you know, we think things would be so easy if our child could just be the way we want them to be. Right? be and great. I'm sure they're thinking the same thing about us. If you would just be the parent I need you to be right now, everything would be so easy. So I think when we kind of catch ourselves in this idealization and we can acknowledge that's a very normal response. And then we need to just kind of like buck up and deal with the reality of what we have. 
you know, combined with some acknowledgement of the loss that's there, there's always loss. There's loss for all parents. There's loss of the idea of what kind of a child we thought we were going to raise. You know, that's real. And it will happen at different stages for different parents. I thought infancy was going to be the best stage. It's the worst. Or, you know, my child, my child is trans. I thought I was raising a girl. Or my child hates school. I loved school. I don't know how to relate to my child around this or whatever, whatever. My child's rejecting me. My child prefers their other parent. That feels so painful. That's a loss. So these losses, I feel like part of parenting. And when we acknowledge it, it makes it so much easier, I think, to connect with other people and to get support. Um, And just acknowledging our own vulnerability, right? That this stuff is hard and like, we're not perfect parents right or we're not and we're not perfect children i just want to give you guys both this danny ovation so a few things there is something in the adoption land called coming out of the fog Mm -hmm. it's where you begin to understand that you're not chosen you're not special that you have an origin story that that origin story is likely painful Mm -hmm. um to be really strong a lot of people feel that they were a commodity because of the money. And that's probably a whole different podcast, but you're dealing with these heavy emotions. One of the things you said about the double consciousness too, before I sink too deep into that, thank you so much for that, because I think that's good for, for any situation, any relationship, but particularly mm-hmm. being able to go into the stance of not necessarily resolution, but understanding. And, yeah. and that just broadens the heart and opens it. So I just appreciate the acknowledgement from both of you, that there is loss and trauma for all parties involved and navigating that in real time in this very messy system that is not equipped Mm -hmm. to handle. And as you stated also, we are overrepresented four times more likely to to commit suicide. Like that's a big number. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I hope that these conversations can make people feel validated and heard and seen. Um, at least it's connect, and connecting. I mean, that's what your podcast is doing is creating an opportunity for people to connect right around shared experience. Um, and also to learn about other perspectives, right? Learning about not just the perspective of adoptees, which there is so much diversity, diversity, but also that again, raising that consciousness, um, around other kind of perspectives and how other people might be experiencing things. But I think you know, finding that support is one way that folks can process and manage loss Mm -hmm. and live with, as opposed to pushing away, you know, the reality, Um, you know, people, you know, sort of similar to how we talk about grief, right? You don't just grieve and move on. You just live with grief. Um, But it's different, right? It changes its form and its shape and where it is in, in relation to you. And the same thing with any kind of loss, including like adoption-related loss. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Abby. And Elisa, I've kind of hogged this whole interview. We have about 10 minutes left with Abby. So what else What else shall we talk about, ladies? Goodness. Well, there's way too much to talk about. I perhaps give a few minutes, if we may, before we start to wrap up, just a few minutes around. I kind of view this as, quote, extended family. Abby's done so much research in the public mm-hmm. school system. Mm-hmm. One of the recent projects she's done is the uh, 
I hope I'm pronouncing this right, the Rudd Adoption Research Program that partners with Clark University and UMass at Amherst that looks at extending, quote, the family into the K through 12. And how do you do that so that um, teachers really understand? Teachers are kind of part of the parents. I mean, they're part of the family structure from the definitely the academic, but also the social. They are so important to child development. Um, one of my best friends from college who is in Boston was talking, I was talking to her about this project and she's, um, she's an elementary school teacher. She's an ESL teacher. And she's like, this has so much relevance to us. And then Mm -hmm. I realized, Abby, your research on this, I was like, oh my goodness. Right. So this is a huge piece. So a few minutes, please just talk to us a little bit about your research involving that and help, help us Mm -hmm. weave it in, you know, in the last few minutes we've got. Yeah. So um, obviously, as I've been following these families, I've been very interested in their relationships with schools because schools are where children spend a lot of their time and parents interact with schools. And so through that, so I looked a lot at sort of how were parents experiencing schools. And then I realized I should also talk to teachers. So that's where I did this work with the Red Adoption Institute. So I interviewed, um, sorry, I surveyed over 200 teachers about their knowledge and experiences with adopted students. Well, only like, you know, a very small proportion, less than 15% of teachers actually have any training, any training during their education or professional development that related to adoption at any time. 15%, less than 15%, which is pretty startling. Um, Now, they... Fortunately, many of them actually say they learn a lot on the job. And so one of the things that they learn through just engaging with adopted students and families is that, you know, they need to be rethinking how they think about and talk about family and how they, re, you know, rethinking assignments, anything to do with the big ones are genetic, you know, DNA, family trees, bringing a baby photo. Um, even things like Mother's Day, Father's Day, different holidays, birthdays, recognizing that all of these things can create trauma and, um, you know, at the very least be difficult to respond to for adopted students. So I always remember this one quote from a teacher that said, you know, she said, true inclusion is not accommodation, essentially. So we don't want to just be modifying assignments and modifying how we talk about families. We just want to be rethinking what does an inclusive curriculum mean, you know? And I really love that because I think, yeah, every child should feel able to participate and nobody should have to be given a separate assignment. Um, So likewise, you know, trauma-informed teaching benefits all kids. It doesn't just benefit adopted kids and kids who are in foster care. So if we took more trauma-informed approaches, and really understand how broad that concept is, we can, we, we don't have to think about ourselves as doing something different for this group or, you know, oh, I have an adopted kid in my class. I got to do this other thing, or I have to say, I have to be really careful that I don't do an adopt a highway program. Maybe just sponsor highway and just make that your practice, right? You know, you don't have to change your language for a particular group, just change your language. So I think if we push these more expansive ways of thinking, they really benefit more children than you think. Um, Plus, as I found in my research, teachers often don't know that kids are adopted anyway. Um, Parents and or kids may not 
share that information. Um, or they may have a parent, teachers often have a pretty limited idea about what adoption means. And so it's possible when they think adoption, they're thinking foster care, or they're thinking private domestic, or they're thinking international, because maybe that's what they've been exposed to. And so they miss all the diversity and the complexity beyond that more narrow vision. Thank you so much for that, Abby. Is there anything in these last few moments that you would like to say, anything we didn't cover that's really important to you to communicate? I just think, you know, it's so important for different voices to be, you know, heard and at the table. And I think it's also as hard as it is, it's important for those different voices to um, to talk to each other, right? So I think there's so much, as I said, so much wealth in having, you know, adopted people talk to each other and get communion, right? And mm-hmm. for adoptive parents to talk to each other and get communion and birth families. But I also think it's important to come together and to really be listening as hard as that is to really be listening to what folks are saying. Um, because I just, especially right now, 2022, right? I feel like we can have all of these isolated little contingents and everyone can pat themselves on the back and think like, I, I understand, or I'm right. you know. And it's just, it can only take us so far. Mm-hmm. Very, very well said, Abby. Any other last thoughts, Elisa? No, I think this was brilliant. I really do. Um, I love the idea of um, different groups communing with each other and then all communing with each other and finding a place, um, even though it's hard, there's always a place of common ground. And um, as groups you know, get more polarized, it's ever more important to find that common ground through really listening, through validation, through acknowledgement of all the differences. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, I thank both of you so much. I really think at the end of the day, it's about humanity mm-hmm. and just looking at each other with greater compassion and understanding, and of course, depth of knowledge. And I can't thank both of you enough for your expertise and for your time and for your amazing neurons. Like, I'm so jealous. <laughs> well, Can I just have you some? You. I mean, that's the thing. It's like different people bring different things to the table. And it's just wonderful that you created this space. And well, it's well, been so successful. Well, thank you so much, Abby, because I might be knocking on your door again. Elise and I were discussing. We didn't even get into all the diversity of families, you know, so oh, yeah. it would be so wonderful yeah. to swoop back around and really dive into those different subjects that our community is so interested in and also validate those experiences. Absolutely. Happy we'll time. carry on, ladies. We have work to do. We do. We have a lot of work to do. We do oh, have a lot of work let's to do. all have some coffee. <laughs> Thank you both Thank so you. much. Thank, Thank you so much. much for joining us. Oh, you're Thank so you. welcome. And I appreciate both of you.